Welcome to How We Got There. I am your host, Mike Davis, founder of Go-To-Market Guides. I interview thought leaders and founders in the Salesforce ecosystem to help ISVs learn new things to try and mistakes to avoid. This episode of How We Got There is brought to you by ISB App. ISB App is used by leading Salesforce ISVs and OEMs as the central toolbox to reduce churn, increase renewals, identify upsell potential, and close more deals. ISB App is the only plug and play solution for the AppExchange App Analytics API and provides deep product insights. The setup is easy and takes less than five minutes. Visit ISBapp.com, that's I-S-B-A-P-P.com com to learn how you can take advantage of usage data in your app today. All right, we are here with Jack Campbell. He is the Director of Strategic Partnerships at OpFocus and previously was with Huron and Magnet360. Jack, welcome to the pod. Thanks, Mike. So I guess to start off, tell us a little bit about how you made your way into the Salesforce ecosystem and then flow that right into who OpFocus is and what do you do there? Cool. Maybe an abridged version. I didn't study anything related to this in college. I studied finance and Mandarin Chinese and ended up in Beijing at the height of the financial crisis, which wasn't ideal. So I took a swing at tech, which, you know, in the late 2000s was pretty hot. I moved to San Francisco. I joined a bunch of failing startups and learned the hard way that it's not just a, you know, easy lottery ticket to buy. And my roommate at the time was a Salesforce rep. He was a BDR in their since retired Mountain View office. His dad was an OG at Salesforce. And he asked, do you want to be a Salesforce sales rep? And said, I don't really think I've got that in me. And he said, well, we've got a pretty robust uh, partner ecosystem. I'd like to get you introduced to some folks that I've known throughout the years. And uh, we went that route. So I originally worked for a really small shop that did branded apps, sites, and communities on the Salesforce community platform, a since sort of fossilized uh, relic of the, the Salesforce ecosystem. That company got bought by Magnet360, and I was somewhat thrust into the broader world of just general Salesforce stuff. So did a few years of Magnet. They got acquired at the end of the acquisition. I sort of turned my sights into the, you know, the wide world of Salesforce consulting. I'd felt that I'd sort of gotten my chops and, uh, you know, could could take it on the road. Huron had just acquired a shop called Cloud62 based out of Buffalo. Really liked the CEO of Cloud62, thought that he had a real great grind mindset. So I was given a, a pretty wide latitude in the sales capacity at Huron. You know, I was the only salesperson. I was sort of leading our efforts and it was real catch as catch can in terms of interfacing with Salesforce reps and you know, just generating pipeline. And that was fun. You know, I, I did well. I, I hit, you know, good, big numbers. And I think the one thing that I felt was missing in my life was the ability to specialize, which is what I do now. So I went on the hunt again. I was looking for a partner that had sort of put their stake in the ground and said, we're now a vertical shop. There aren't a lot in the space. Everyone knows Silverline. You know, they do financial services and more recently they do health services cloud. And I wanted something where I could really have the same conversation over and over again throughout the day and 
get an expertise. My, my little pitch, my joke is that, you know, I used to speak to an elevator supply company and a supply and logistics company and then a hospital system and then a bank, you know, all in one day. And I never knew what the hell I was talking about. It was just, you know, how do I position a Salesforce product? And I'm constantly behind the ball. So I, I had got connected with OpFocus. They had just recently completed a pivot to moving entirely to SaaS. So I said, hey, you know, this could potentially be my place. I worked at a couple of SaaS companies in the past and I knew the motions. So let's do it. So that was three years ago as of the 1st of February. So just did my my work anniversary. And yeah, I, I can't say that this is not exactly what I expected. It's been a lot more than what I expected. I now feel that I have this sort of domain expertise in the SaaS space that I was sorely missing in a lot of other sales roles. So I've sort of ticked that box and we're, we're crushing it. At this point, I, I think we're really the only shop in the space that has definitively said that we will only work with SaaS companies. And if you're not, we're more than happy to recommend you to another partner, but we're all about SaaS revenue operations excellence. And that's our game. So that's that's my story in a nutshell. Love it. And I guess uh, for the folks listening um, who I'd be surprised if there was a non-SaaS person listening, but hi, if you're the one that's out there. But what are some industry trends related to to SaaS that, that you're seeing that might be useful for the ISVs listening? Yeah, well, I, I think that everyone potentially listening is aware that there is this growing and, and it has been growing now for a few years, but it's ramping more considerably. But M&A, the, the growth through acquisition uh, strategy is hot, whether it be a roll up or you're buying a competing partner in the space you know, or a competitor in the space. The ability to sort of add product functionality through acquisition is the name. This is fueled by an increase in private equity spend. So private equity groups are buying controlling stakes in, in you know, established SaaS firms and going out into the competitive marketplace and saying, okay, who do we buy next to roll into this product and, and sort of land grab the industry? I, I we, we have a pitch or rather it's just the thing I say. It's, you know, we don't, we don't care what you're selling to, you're selling a license on a recurring basis. You know, the, the industry that you provide services to doesn't really matter much to us, but, but the same goes for, uh, for private equity. It's, it's, they're looking for a land grab. They're looking for the opportunity to, to find emerging industries and to roll up companies that supply that industry and really take over that entire space. So the big trend is, and from a systems perspective, we're seeing a lot of people who are now, whether this because is because of COVID or even as a catalyst provided by increased M&A activity, they're seeing their systems lagging considerably. It's kind of a, a funny joke or maybe an irony of the space is that uh, SaaS companies have a tendency to SaaS products. They'll go out and buy a best-in-breed product and implement it because they believe the pitch and they believe that it's going to help sort of strengthen them operationally. And and what they end up doing is you know taking on a lot of technical debt that doesn't scale with the business the way that, say, revenue or headcount is scaling with the business. This is pretty much a certainty. So you ask if it's a trend. Yeah, these companies are going out and buying Gainsight or Clary or you know any number of, of products which sort of pr- promise this golden bullet type of you know scenario with their data and they're, they're putting garbage data into it because their systems are somewhat old and deprecated in a lot of ways. What, how is this a trend? It, everyone is, is scaling super fast. You know, it's a good problem to have, right? But systems tend to lag and, and that's where we're seeing a lot of people come to us with issues and they're saying, you know, we need to strengthen our tech stack in order to continue the scalability that we're achieving now. 
Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. You you said uh, something that reminded me of a uh, Robert Smith quote. For folks that don't know, he's the head of Vista Equity and, and they acquired one of the companies I used to work for exactly. He has this quote that I absolutely love. Software companies taste like chicken. They're selling different products, but 80% of what they do is pretty much the same. Right. Um, <laughs> like, I mean, that's the t- type of like, just kind of their their methodology and their ability to print money. And that's why they're 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 buying up SaaS companies. Yep. Awesome. So I guess you work with a lot of SaaS companies. I mean you do it all the time. What advice do you have to kind of save some maybe pain for folks that might want to get acquired by private equity at some day? Because really at the end of the day, you have a few different outcomes. You can go out of business, hopefully not. You can get acquired by a competitor. You can get acquired by PE or you can IPO. And like you were saying, I think more and more people will see their outcome as acquisition from uh, PE. So I guess what are you seeing that could maybe help people uh, save some pain going through that process? Yeah, it's... um you know, I see it very much from from my lens, but also from sort of just the more general lens that's afforded to me by interfacing with private equity groups professionally. And a lot of it is due to just down to good old fashioned due diligence. And I think that a lot of people's perception of due diligence sort of starts and ends at the finances of a business, when in reality, it really does span the breadth of, of any sort of operational structure. And where we come in more often than not is to do technology due diligence. And, and even that can sort of be broken into a lot of different categories. Um, Technology due diligence is, you know, at its very heart, it's it's data health in systems that we, you know, work with, whether it's CRM or ERP, and, and being able to say to, you know, a finance auditor, yeah, these are the books, and they're trued up across multiple different systems. is It's tough, and, and it stems from systems, right? The other side of the house is sort of product due diligence. So when you're bringing a product to market, you're constantly iterating, you're getting feedback from your users, and you're, you know, expanding on on the product, you're pivoting the product dozens of times, and what you're, you know, eventually going to end up doing is over-engineering large elements of that product. And you know, it's good. Your customers know it's good. And, and furthermore, you're now sort of going through the motions with a private equity group or a VC or an underwriter if you're looking to IPO. And um, some of these things can become more glaring. Like I said, on the on the data side of things, you know, having a, a clean house is is massively important if you're going to IPO in June and you're going to you know have to start reporting your sales numbers to the street, you know, on June one, um, and and you know more so into the tech stack that you're you're building, you know, from a product front end perspective to say you know we're we're bug free or you know X Y and Z function of our enterprise level product are you know clean and ready to go for for an IPO are extremely important. And yeah, it just gets back to what people's perception of due diligence is. You know, it's not just the finances. It's a lot of the tech side of your tech business. You know, we're, we're all selling tech. Yeah. And, and I mean, that makes sense. It's just like how quickly can that buyer kind of make a dollar twenty uh, for every dollar that you previously had in revenue? And right. if the tech is 
isn't there, then it's going to be a struggle for them. Right. And we, you know, we, we, on a day-to-day basis are hearing, you know, what mechanical changes can I make to my org or my instance of X, Y, and Z to, you know, better visualize CAC or churn. And, you know, they're, they're easy questions, right? You can say it in a breath, but when you've got sort of dozens of systems speaking across multiple integrations that are either real time or, you know, some sort of a batch job, these questions become multifaceted and a lot more difficult to answer. And I think if you asked a lot of SaaS firms, you know, what their CAC is, you could get a different answer from a different person in a different business unit, you know, across the whole business. So sort of normalizing and standardizing and having some governance built around how you're reporting things like CAC or churn are really important. And and I think it's, you know, for anyone listening, I'm sure that's probably a very common problem that they're having and that we're, we're constantly boots on the ground. Solving. Yeah, because I mean, there are differences in metrics. So like gross churn versus net dollar retention or net churn, like those are just different numbers but it's it's hilarious to see the variety of the elements of the math equation to calculate a gross churn across different uh, different folks so I can only imagine some of the problems that you're solving yeah I had a customer I actually maybe the small anecdote I had a a bit of a do as I say, not as I do, bubble up over the course of the last few days I got um, introduced to a SaaS firm through a private equity group that we're partnered with and I learned that they're they're somewhat kicking tires, but more specifically, I learned that they're putting together a pseudo RFP. They're not calling it an RFP, and likely they're not calling it an RFP because they don't want to scare away salespeople like myself. Because apparently, nobody ever wins RFPs; they kind of just go to. But I felt like this is something that we could answer with sort of a one-to-one solution, so I took it on. I, I figured I'll do this RFP. Why not? And they're asking for some potential like ranges for some numbers around their phase two. And their phase two is uh, very revenue recognition, billing, cloud billing, budgeting, forecasting, licensing, and order management. And they're doing all this sort of under the bubble of NetSuite integration. And I, I cannot stress to SaaS executives, stakeholders, end users, et cetera, that revenue recognition is 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 a thing. It's it's a, a generally accepted accounting GAAP, and it's it's required by law under ASC six hundred six. And compliance with such is something that happens in in the finance function of a business. It is not something that you should rely upon. Say CRM. CRM is one part of a very large whole. But if you are going to a consultant and asking, how can I do revenue recognition in my CRM, you are asking not only the wrong question, but you are asking a potentially illegal question. So a lot of these themes kind of just bubble up and it's like, yeah, you're, you're going in the right direction, but you got to think about this more holistically because, you know, this is this is a, a thing that you have to get in compliance with. And, and you know, we're, we're only going to be able to tell you one little bit of it. Otherwise, you got to go to, a you know, an accounting firm and get your books in order. Love it. What are you most proud of from your time at uh, OpFocus, Jack? I think sort of understanding our pivot and being able to uh, apply myself to a new methodology of operating in our ecosystem. And I, I guess I can expand on that. We don't really work with Salesforce very closely anymore. It's not because we don't like them. They pay the bills. But Specific to our space, the majority of the sort of revenue driving uh, functions within our business come from our 
ability to operationally strengthen companies that are being invested in by private equity groups. So private equity group A sees us doing good work in account A, and they bring us a whole bunch of portfolio companies and say, I'd like it if you do this with them too. And what this has sort of resulted in is our ability to take a step back and say, you know, the first engagement we do with any of you guys is not going to be tactical. You know, we're more than happy to tell you how much it's going to cost to implement CPQ or, you know, service cloud, say you're moving over from Zendesk, something like that. But in order for us to get truly tactical, we need to take a look at your sort of foundational architecture of Salesforce. And we need to sort of re-architect that to support your future state go-to-market motions, whether you're going to go and buy another company this year and you have to integrate them in, whether you're moving your product upstream from mid-market to enterprise, and now you have to start talking about ABM and account pods with the CS function. All of these things need to be defined and, and sort of built for in Salesforce before we even build them. And uh, this is a tough pill to swallow as a salesperson because it means I'm deferring revenue. I'm telling a customer, hey, listen, pay us to design this stuff. And then the big SOW I get signed is, you know, four or five months away. It's it's tough, but I, I dug into it and I realized after a couple of, of, of customers and engagements that we were working with that this was, in fact, a better way of going about selling Salesforce services. And now it's every engagement that I sell. And that deferred revenue is only really the first time around, because once you get a full pipe of these things, you're getting a full pipe later on of bigger and better projects that, you know, result in your customers being happier than them actually hitting their, their go-to-market goals from a systems perspective. And frankly, a lot of the people who buy from me get promoted, which is also lovely. It's nice to see their little celebrations in, in LinkedIn. So I, I bit the bullet for sure. I, I, I took a dive in a, in a way that, you know, I hadn't been classically trained in the Salesforce ecosystem to operate. And I said, screw it, let's give it a shot. And I've been very successful because of it. One one thing that you, you said there that was interesting, well, you said a number of things that was interesting, but one thing that I want to double click on a little bit is just around your interaction or or lack thereof with Salesforce AEs and SEs, because a lot of SIs that I talk to and that our, our listeners talk to, their their main line of business is from the Salesforce AE and SE. And so it sounds like you get a lot from referrals. It sounds like you get a lot from private equity referrals. I mean, is that the 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 full of the pipeline or is there still some from Salesforce? Uh, it's the it's the most measurable amount. Yeah. I mean, I still have Salesforce reps that I work with, whether it's through, you know, just being in the space for a while and, you know, interacting with them. We all have Slack now, so maybe we'll just Slack a rep. And, and sometimes, you know, we'll have success within an account and we'll surface some opportunities and the rep obviously has to close the licensing deal for them. So then the rep says, oh, can you do that again within this account? That's that's totally doable. Where I think we've really deviated is this sort of baby catching um, where, you know, a partner is you're the sales guy, you're measured on how much time you're spending in the Salesforce office. You know, you got an Amex and you got to take them out to steak dinners. You know, you're going to Dreamforce and all the world tour events. And you're going through a lot of motions to generate, frankly, kind of a spooky pipeline because you're kind of beholden to the sales person at Salesforce's ability to close the deal on time and, you know, kick you the opportunity without getting into a compete. So yeah, we've, we've, 
by no means sort of, you know, knowingly and uh, intentionally turned away from Salesforce. It just sort of takes up a vanishingly small amount of my time and therefore is represented in a vanishingly small amount of my pipeline. Love it. That's a good position to be in. And I actually, a lot of ISPs struggle with focusing on industries. And I, I hear it all the time. I'm like, hey, we're a horizontal application. We can serve everybody. We don't want to focus because we'll lose some of the business that we rely on. I mean, that's obviously true of Salesforce technology and OpFocus's ability to implement it. I guess as much as you you can share, like what's that done for the business? How, why did you go down that path of focusing? I, I, I guess just give your perspective on, on what focus has brought. Yeah. So a lot of this happened before I arrived here, but I'm, I'm well versed in it enough. And, and I guess I can start with the short answer. We've seen massive success from it. This is, this has been a really successful experiment. So how did it start? Well, the name of our company came around before, you know, our pivot to working with SaaS and our founder, Dave Carnes had a theory that, you know, Salesforce was more than an IT tool, that it was sort of an operational enablement tool. This is way back in the day. This is 2005, 2006. So uh, it's been sort of part of our, our lifeblood and our ethos for a long time. So there's one element. Uh, the other is we're a Boston-based company. There's a ton of tech up in Boston. So there was coincidentally, you know, a large enough amount of our customer base was already SaaS, simply just by virtue of you know, there being a lot of SaaS companies in the Boston area. The final and, you know, maybe less sexy answer is uh, we hired a consulting firm. Uh, we said, hey, listen, <laughs> help us figure out who we should sell to. And we we did a pretty, you know, instructive gap analysis with them where we found, you know, listen, there's money to be made in SaaS. Some of it is obvious and, you know, reason we're sitting on the phone is because I interface directly with private equity groups. Private equity groups that invest in elevator companies are not growth equity groups. They're doing a hostile takeover. That is a fact. So the, the growth equity side of the private equity world is what we're going for because everyone's goal is to exit. And how do you exit? By strengthening, strengthening operational excellence within a business. And that's been our ethos since the very beginning. So, you know, wrapping all this up, I did used to work with a lot of CIOs and CTOs. And I think it was a, a crutch that Salesforce definitely sort of used to and, and still in a way does lean on heavily, which is like, this is a business system. Business systems should own it. We take the opposite stance. Salesforce is an ops tool. And anytime we're taking on a new customer and you know aligning ourselves to the executive leadership team with with our goals and, and sort of the operational you know outcomes that we want to have in, in any engagement that we have, alignment is huge for us. You need an ops team. You need that team to roll up to a COO or a CRO who has visual visual sort of alignment to the business and it's more specifically to that person's goals. So it, it it's a happy marriage. You know, a lot of this you know has has come through our long life cycle as a Salesforce partner. And we did slog through working with hammer companies, right? But we sort of landed on this, this happy medium where our goals align very well with our customers' goals and they really align very well with private equity's goals. We're in a good spot. Nice. I guess uh, just because you're an SI and a lot of the ISPs listening to this love to work with SIs like yourself. Are, do you guys implement any ISV solutions that are out on the app exchange? And if so, like, what do y'all look for in a, in a good app exchange partner? It's a good question. We 
we're not going to shy away from it as no partner should there there's there's the burning question right buy versus build and the answer is usually buy right so you know th- that will often break down to a, a couple of sort of success criteria and KPIs that we're looking for when evaluating an ISV. I think to put it very, I guess, bluntly, the first thing we're looking for is the last time you had, if you're listed on the app exchange and you had a release in 2019, that's probably not going to cut the mustard today. People are looking for, you know, iterative development of your product and they're looking to see that you've, you know, invested you know, year over year in creating new functionality for them. It's not a good look to have a two or three year old release. And and I get that the sort of inadequacies of the app exchange can make it so that sometimes data isn't current. You can see that from our app exchange page. I think we've got 22 implementations in there over the 15 year history of our business, but that's a big one. We do a lot of gap analyses. So there's obviously competing partners in the ISV space and, you know, it's, you're constantly wrangling for page views and just, you know, top of the fold placement. And where we see a lot of, you know, consulting businesses doing requirements gathering and then going out to ISVs and saying, do you meet these requirements or do you over meet these requirements? You know, a lot of times we're trying to find a point solution and we're not trying to kill a mosquito with it. So a lot of the time having, the relevant information pertinent to requirements gathering that a partner would do is something that's just really helpful to have like right there on your app exchange listing. That makes my job easier. It makes me aligning to a rep at an ISV much easier because I can say, hey, listen, we need a demo on X, Y, and Z based off of requirements gathering we've done. And I guess some parting advice is, um, you know, you mentioned vertically integrating as opposed to being a horizontal product. The thing that we get asked the most about ISV wise is can we implement a sales methodology that has an app? For example, like a Miller Hyman Blue Sheet. I think if you went on the app exchange right now and typed in Miller Hyman Blue Sheet, you'd get like 12, 15 different examples. And to my prior point, a lot of them probably were you know, deprecated in 2015 or 2016. And the, the, the overall sort of, you know, deliberation we come to is, you know, you should probably build this, don't, don't buy it. So if you're going to make a point solution, like something like a Miller Hyman blue sheet, or even something of, you know, more a sexier sort of functionality that, you know, you can put your stake in the ground and say, you know, this sales process methodology meets the requirements of a SaaS business, because that almost certainly isn't going to translate into a hammer company or an elevator supply company. People will click and and care more if you're saying, listen, this is for you. And I mean, that's the thing. If, if you get specific, there's enough pie out there where everybody can have some pie. Like there's an, uh, a Salesforce OEM that's building uh, a solution for John Deere uh, dealer. And it's like, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of those. Like yeah. get specific and, and make a bunch of money and solve a real world problem. Yeah, for sure. I think, uh, I think what a lot of people listening are, are probably having a challenge with is just like name recognition. And we have a challenge with it as well. And and it's it's interesting because every Mo Dick and Larry can list on the app exchange if you go through, you know, the somewhat arduous steps of doing so, right? But it's sort of the prototypical like 
guys in their parents' garage type story where it's like, yeah, you probably can build the next financial force, sure. But, you know, having the, you know, ability to say, listen, this is for this, it solves these problems. This is how I differ from the other seven of the same exact thing in the app exchange with a cool logo. You know, that's valuable to people who are, you know, frankly, making a pretty important business decision that they're going to be at the end of the year scored on and potentially given a bonus over. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we'll wrap up with the final three rapid fire questions, 10 second answers, ready to go. Sure. Who is one company or person in the ecosystem that you track or follow? One company right now that I think is probably the hottest is Workado. Nice. What would you tell yourself day one of working in the ecosystem? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, well, the first thing you got to learn is learn the Salesforce products front and back better than the sales reps that are selling them. But that's not very helpful. You got to learn that anyway. No, I, I would go back and tell myself to, to specialize. I wouldn't have spent so much time screwing around with the elevator supply companies. And lastly, what gives you energy in your personal life? Oh, my personal life. Nice. I cook. I, I've been working from home now for seven years. And as sales reps, we have uh, we have good calendars. You can you can block off a nice afternoon to go get a, a really nice steak at the butcher. So I have been cooking pretty consistently for the last seven years, and I've I've recently graduated from cookbooks. I kind of just do my own thing now. So I'm making the transition from from home cook to chef. I think chef. All right, Chef Jack. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for coming on and sharing. Yeah, it was a good chat. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for listening, and I hope you learned something from today's episode of How We Got There. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. I'll see you here next time.